All right, if you would please open in the Bible to John chapter 11 on page um, 897 in the Pew Bible, which is uh, in the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to look this morning at the whole chapter, uh, John chapter 11, verses 1 to uh, 47. It actually says 46, but I'm going to go through 47. Uh, So if you would open to the Bible, either your own Bible or the Pew Bible, John chapter 11, we'll look at um, not quite the whole chapter, but most of the chapter. If you would please stand. It's John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, page 897. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, uh, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews says, said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for your word. We thank you very much uh, for this particular passage of the Bible. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would please send your sovereign spirit upon us, that you would pry open our ears and hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I recently did a funeral. Uh, it was for a lovely lady. She was coming up on 100 years old. Uh, she was not a member of Metrocrest. Uh, this was for a colleague of mine at a church in South Dallas. And uh, he asked me to take the funeral because he was not well and couldn't take it. So he asked me to come fill in for him, which I was very happy to do and honored to do. Uh, the lady was from a very, very old and distinguished Dallas family. Uh, her uh, family had been involved in the produce business for decades and decades and decades, back into the, uh, into the 50s, 40s, 30s. Her family had been involved in providing produce for the tables of the homes in Dallas, Texas over many years. And uh, so the room was filled uh, with uh, quite a few older people and then a lot of um, their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. So it was a very interesting group of people, and I was very happy to be able to be there. Um, 
that's the most recent funeral I've done. I've done a lot of funerals in 32 years. I've done funerals for uh, families of people here in the room right now. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be able to uh, do a, a ceremony uh, for a funeral, a, cer- a funeral for a, a person with connections to the Christian church. And uh, this, this most recent uh, ceremony was no exception. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the lady who had died left very careful instructions for her funeral. Uh, coming up on Lent, I'm going to be reminding you it is a very nice thing to do for your family to leave instructions for your funeral. Uh, it's a really nice thing. It makes it a lot easier on them. Uh, lots of things that you've decided that they don't have to decide. And so I, I commend it to you. It's something worth thinking about. No matter how young you are, uh, it's a good thing to plan those things and leave it where someone you trust knows where to find those things. Uh, she had done that. And one of the things she had specified was that she wanted this passage, a portion of this chapter, read at her funeral which told me a lot, (laughs) because this passage is actually a record of a funeral. And it's a record of a funeral with a powerful message. I'd like for us to think about this funeral sermon that John records. It's Jesus' funeral sermon. Uh, It's the one he preached, uh, if you will, at a funeral, a family funeral. It was a funeral for a family that he dearly loved. Uh, at the beginning of the passage, back at the beginning of John chapter 11, we read several references to how much Jesus loved this family. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. He loved the whole family. They were dear to him. And so this is a record of Jesus' funeral sermon for a family that he dearly, dearly loved. Um, I'm going to refer to another John, not John the gospel writer, John the apostle, but John Calvin. I mean, that's a safe thing to do at a Presbyterian church when we just quoted the Ten Commandments and the Westminster uh, Catechism, uh, Shorter Catechism. Well, let me quote John Calvin. John Calvin wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John, including this passage. And it was actually, I think, one of his, one of his particularly uh, beautiful uh, comments that he shared about this particular chapter. Uh, Calvin writes these words. About this passage, this chapter, he says, Not only did Christ give a remarkable proof of his divine power in raising Lazarus, but he likewise placed before our eyes a lively image of our future resurrection. A lively image of our future resurrection. I think it's a pretty good description of every funeral. Every funeral service, every funeral sermon is meant to do those things. It's it's to show demonstration of God's divine power in Christ and likewise to place before our eyes a lively image of something that has to do with you and me. And so I'd like to take, borrow from John Calvin, if you don't mind, those two headings, a divine proof, our divine power, proof of divine power, point one. And the second point, a lively image. Let's think about both those things for this funeral sermon. If you look at the uh, fourth verse of chapter 11, um, we actually get a glimpse into how Jesus understands what's happening. Uh, He's heard about the impending death of someone he loved. This wasn't uh, someone he didn't know or care about. It wasn't a random person. This was someone he dearly loved. And verse 4 says... um, when he was told that his friend's uh, sisters 
had asked for him. Uh, he said, Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Uh, what Jesus is doing here in, his, this, in uh, this engagement with a family that he loved is he's actually giving them cause to give glory to God and specifically that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What he's about to do, this, the rest of this chapter is going to give us a glimpse into God's glory and into the glory of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a little reminder, actually, of what John's been doing all the way to this point, from John chapter 2 all the way up through John chapter 10. Uh, the Gospel of John has been recording a series of what he calls signs. Signs pointing towards something. The first sign you may remember a few weeks ago was when Jesus changed water into wine, John chapter 2. He had a great sermon from Ahmad Aubrey on that. And what did the uh, changing of the water into wine point towards? Well, it, it pointed towards our shame, our guilt, part of the reality of our life. And it pointed towards new creation. It pointed towards what God is about in the world. Uh, the second sign was the healing of the royal official son in John chapter 4, uh, where a, a sick uh, son, a child, a young person was healed. And we saw how in John's gospel, uh, Jesus Christ is the God who heals. He's, the, he's the, the powerful one who has the ability to heal the illnesses that afflict us. In uh, the third sign, in John chapter 5, we get a glimpse of Jesus healing the paralytic at the pool. Another brilliant sermon, I thought, by a, a visiting preacher, Julian Russell, who talked about the paralytic waiting by the pool. And, and he had been paralyzed since birth and had had a, a long and difficult life. And, and yet Jesus came and healed him. The, the, the healing that overcomes those things which terrify us, that afflict us in this life. Uh, something as awful as the inability to uh, walk, the inability to be able to move around. In uh, John chapter 6, we have the fourth sign, feeding of 5,000 with fish and loaves, pointing towards the Old Testament when God provides for his, his people in the wilderness, how he feeds us and he provides for us and, and he nourishes us and sustains us. Uh, the fifth sign, which we looked at last Sunday from John chapter 6, was Jesus walking on the water, showing his power over the elements of this world, the, the elements that seem to us so overwhelming. Jesus is shown to be Lord over them, and, and he can actually walk on the surface of the sea. And we saw how that's a reminder of what God did for his people in Israel uh, when he led them out of Egypt into freedom and into mission. And then we come to this seventh sign here in John chapter 11. I've heard John chapter 11 called sort of the exclamation point, if you will, in this series of signs. It's been building, making a case for who Jesus is, making a case for the, the power that he has over the elements and illness and, and also the person of who he is. Who is this person? with this power. And we've been building this case very slowly, making the point, uh, sign by sign by sign, who this man is in whose name we gather this morning.
Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Well, the exclamation point makes it very plain that, that this Jesus whom we've been learning about in John chapter 1 through 10 and now in John chapter 11, this Jesus is actually the person of God in the flesh. He is actually John 1 lived out. He, he is this person, this word of God made flesh. And this is the point, the exclamation point that John has been slowly leading us to helping us to understand not only the power of Jesus, but the source of his power. Why does he have power? What's the power pointing us towards? It's pointing us towards who he is, what Calvin calls the proof of his divine power. Only God has the power to do the things that Jesus has the power to do. So we glorify God for the miracles that Jesus works. But actually we come to see that as as we look at the signs of these works of Jesus, we actually come to see that what these signs are pointing us towards is him, who he is. And so we give glory not only to God, but to the Son of God, God in the flesh. God made flesh, God come into the world for his people, That's the God that we worship. And John has been building this case all along. And it's really important to establish that here in John chapter 11 as we come into the concluding chapters of John. Because John actually has something to teach us about what God is like and what God has done. He's not only the God who works miracles, who heals and restores, who commands the elements... That same God in Christ came into the world to do something extraordinary, something remarkable, something totally unexpected. God, according to John, came into the world in Christ to die. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And if you can sort of push to the side all the Sunday school lessons and all the sermons and Just sort of look at that reality for a moment and imagine being among the readers of John's Gospel who've been reading with breathless anticipation to this point to discover what God has done in Christ. This God came into the world not to push the Romans out of Palestine, but to push the devil and death out of the reality for all of God's people. To, to help us to understand what Christ has accomplished. And then he, here in John 11, he helps us to understand what this God is like. What is this divine son like uh, who has come into the world? And there, there's so many beautiful passages. The, the engagement of Jesus with Mary and Martha how he comes alongside them, how everything he's, he's doing, he tells us, is to show the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God so that we will know who he is. He's been building this case. And all along we've been seeing these little glimpses. And here in John 11 we see reference after reference uh, about Jesus being the light, Jesus being uh, our source of, of understanding in this crazy, dark, messed up world where death is a reality for us. Jesus comes to us as the light in the darkness. 
He comes to a grieving family in verse 17. He found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb four days. That's significant. It wasn't something that had just happened. There's no uncertainty about it. Lazarus was truly dead. Jesus comes to this grieving family in, in, there in Bethany near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews have come to Mar- Martha and Mary. They're doing the first century equivalent of, a, of a, a casserole attack. And all the casseroles have shown up. And the families uh, around Mary and Martha want to minister to them. And they did like what we do. And they wanted to bring food. They wanted to help. And so there's this, this crowd, if you will, around uh, the place, all the Jews who had come to Mary and Martha to console them in verse 10. And Jesus comes in. And I think maybe for everyone who's ever been to a funeral, uh, Martha speaks for us all when she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, Martha didn't understand everything. We, we can certainly sense that. But she understood Jesus had power. She knew that God has power and that Jesus has power. And so she asks him, Lord, where were you? Jesus, where were you uh, when my brother was sick? I tell you, that's, that's a question at every Christian funeral. Lord, where were you when my loved one died? That, that was at the funeral I attended a few weeks ago. She was almost 100. It was no big surprise. But at the same time, it's, it's never easy to let go of a hand we've held on to. It's never easy. And every Christian comes with this question in one way, at one level or another. Where were you, Jesus? Where were you? Well, Jesus answers her. She sa- he says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and life. I, I am, I am, I am. Again, pointing to who this person is. This is God among us. I am the resurrection and the life. I, I don't just bring it. I'm not just the source of it. I am it. And you have it through me. I am the life. I am the resurrection. And so Jesus ministers to these women that he loves here at the grave of Lazarus. And so we have this this picture of what what God is like. And nowhere is it clearer, nowhere is it more poignant than at the point where uh, Jesus goes and he he, he is aware of all the people around him who are crying. Look at verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his his spirit and greatly troubled. It's, It's very significant that this God whom we worship in Christ is a is a God who feels our pain, who feels our grief, who feels our sadness. He comes to the funeral among the mourners. And there he is with these people that he dearly loved. And what does he do? He doesn't judge them. He doesn't look down on them. He doesn't berate them for not having enough faith. 
in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible and maybe one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, John tells us that what Jesus did was he wept with them. He wept. I mean, that is a powerful image of what God is like in Christ. The God whom John tells us about, the God whom we see in Jesus, is a God who relates to us, who cares about us, who cares about what we care about, who really does come alongside us in our pain, in our grief, in our brokenness. That's the Jesus whom we find in the Gospel of John. That's the Jesus whom we want to worship and fall down before this Lord's day, the Jesus who weeps with us. Life is so uncertain. We just had um, this past week, a member of our congregation had a very sudden, serious health issue. And we were just reminded once again of, of, of how fragile life is, how uncertain life is. What a blessing it is to know that the God who is with us in this life, the God who is God over it all, comes into it with us and walks with us and weeps with us. That's the God whom we find in Christ. That's the God whom we worship today. That's the God who we want to proclaim to the dark and needy world around us. So here's, here's uh, this message about uh, the, the proof of the divine power of God Almighty in Christ and what this divine one is like. He weeps with us. Then, then looking at, at this sermon, uh, the last point I'll make is that what Jesus does as he weeps here at the grave of Lazarus is he also turns to give us a lively image. I love, I love that expression, a lively image. He teaches Mary and Martha and the crowd around the tomb of Lazarus. He teaches us something about us. He's showing us who he is. He's about to show us something about you and me. He's going to show why Easter matters to you and me. Because it turns out what Jesus came to show is not only something about who he is. He's come to show us the difference it makes for you and me today. The difference it makes in our life. He comes to show a lively image. What he's actually going to do, I know there are teachers in the congregation today. Uh, there always are. I love teachers. Teachers know the value of a lively image, uh, something to demonstrate. It's one thing to use words and to talk about something. It's something else to actually demonstrate it. And that's what Jesus does. He actually demonstrates it. He's standing at the grave of a friend. He's been weeping with them. It's a reality. It's something he's entered into. And now he's going to do something to show, to show his power and the intersection with the life of a human being. A, a person like you and me. Uh, the difference it makes for us as well. So he, he comes and he stands outside the tomb. And standing there at the grave, he says a quiet prayer. He talks to his father. He actually says, Father, I know what I ask of you, 
You hear me. You actually hear me. I know that. But Father, do this not for me. Do this for them. And by them, he meant not only Mary and Martha and the people watching, but he means you and me as well. Because there's a sense in which we're watching and we're listening. And standing there at the tomb, Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. What a bold thing to do. I mean, let me tell you, I, I was at that funeral and I would not dare to have gone and stood at that casket and said to the, the lady in repose there, Dorothy, come forth. I don't have that power, but Jesus does. So at the tomb, at the grave, he speaks an authoritative word of power. And you can just imagine the scene, the thrilling scene inside the darkness of the grave. First some rustling, and then emerging from the grave, one whom they knew to be dead, who was still wrapped in the grave clothes of the time. He steps forth into the light. That's the power of Jesus. And what that actually is, brothers and sisters, is a, is a lively image of our resurrection, our confidence. Because the one that we worship, Jesus Christ, not only has power over death, which he has shown conclusively to have, but he actually has the power to call you and me forth in himself because he is the resurrection. He is the life. And we put our hope and our trust in him. And he gives us this image, this demonstration of his power. It's a beautiful picture of the power of Christ as it intersects with the life of a sinner like you and me. Now, it's interesting about Lazarus. And if you look across the page over at John chapter 12, people don't often know that Lazarus shows up in more than just John 11. In John 12, it says six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this is the man who'd just been raised from the dead. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there at a dinner party. The guest of honor had just been raised from the dead. No wonder people began to hear about this man from Galilee, this man who'd come and had shown a miraculous power. No wonder there were crowds at this particular Passover. No wonder uh, there are crowds who gather around Jesus as he makes his way into Jerusalem. John's making an explanation for all of that. So there's this dinner party, and there's, it says, Martha serving. Lazarus is one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. What a dinner party that would have been. Not only Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but Jesus himself who is there at the party. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. John 11 actually begins as a, with a reference to something that would happen here in John 12. The woman whose brother died is also the woman who shows this act of adoration to Jesus. Now, Lazarus was raised from the dead but he died. There's no 
reference again to Lazarus in the Gospels, but uh, Lazarus, uh, there were Jews who wanted to kill him. We know that. That's recorded that, that actually they, they began to conspire to kill Lazarus. But Lazarus has died. Uh, what's going to happen later in the Gospel of John that we're going to be looking at in just a few weeks when we come to Easter is that Jesus uh, points here in this passage through our reality, our experience of death, towards the resurrection, which is the ultimate end of death. Because Jesus is raised to new and never-ending life. So Lazarus has not been resurrected. He's been raised, he's been restored, but he died. Jesus is raised to resurrection life. So he is rightly called the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first and, and the only one to be resurrected. We sometimes use raised from the dead and resurrected as interchangeable words. But the resurrection is a unique raising. We're going to read more about that in time to come. But Jesus, who is resurrected, shows us what all of this has been leading towards. He's been leading towards the end of death. The end of death. So at the funeral of his friend, death is having a funeral. At the funeral of Lazarus, we're told that Christ has the power over death, the power of life in himself. And he is the one who dies on the cross. He is the one who is raised to resurrection life, to lead sinners like you and me into resurrection life too, to life with him. Well, John's been developing this case. We're going to, we're going to uh, come back to this for Easter. We'll come back to the Gospel of John for the Easter stories, the Easter events. But I want to just put an exclamation point here. Because all these signs, they're, they're, not, they're not a stop sign. They're certainly not a dead end sign. What they are is signs pointing us, all seven of them pointing us, towards Jesus, pointing us towards the one in whom we put our hope, our trust, our faith today. Because he's shown his power. He's shown who he is. And now we can trust him.